So it's lovely to be here with you and to see quite a few familiar faces, familiar names. To you know, This is one of the upsides of this uh, strange situation that we're in, that we have these new novel ways of connecting. And I wanted to talk about resilience tonight just because for me, at least, it's been the quality that has felt to be most needed. I, um, when the coronavirus started unfolding, I was teaching a one-month retreat in the Netherlands, and we had to end a week early because of the Europe starting to close down. And it was quite a scramble just to get back from the Netherlands to the UK. And then over two months, it's taken me four attempts to get back to New Zealand. And my fourth attempt was successful. That was on Saturday. So I'm finally back here in quarantine for two weeks in this hotel in Auckland. And so all of that was fairly unexpected. And I could just notice in myself whenever there started to be that sense of oh, this shouldn't be happening and why is it like this and I don't like this and I want it to be different, there would be a kind of stiffening and a you know, resistance. And when I could just open to, okay, so this is how it is right now. It's actually fine. And so for me, consciously orienting to this capacity for resilience is what's uh, allowed me to keep some degree of sanity through all of the flux. And I'm sure every one of you has your own particular um, stories, circumstances, challenges that each of you are having to deal with. And each of your stories will be unique, but I'm hoping that this theme of resilience will be relevant no matter what's going on in your life right now. So just to begin with a modern psychology definition of resilience, uh, it's described or defined in psychological terms as our capacity to maintain some degree of calm when under pressure and to move on from a crisis without long lasting negative consequences. So that's the psychological definition. And in terms of the Buddha's teachings, I'd like to suggest that we can go further than that. And that challenges such as this current pandemic situation can help us to develop resources that not only allow us to survive, but actually to thrive, to come through the crisis with, to be stronger than we were before to develop more understanding and more capacity to care for ourselves and for others. So even though by their nature, challenges are challenging, if we approach them with the right attitude, they give us a really powerful opportunity to strengthen qualities that don't necessarily get strengthened when life's going well, we're comfortable and at ease. I know for myself, when things are going well, it's easy to think, mm, we've got plenty of time. We might have a sense that regular meditation, going on retreat and so forth is a good idea, but there's always something else that seems more important. And then suddenly a crisis such as coronavirus happens 
and our usual default ways of doing things perhaps don't work quite so well as they used to. And some of the flaws in our habitual approach to life get revealed. And often what's revealed is the shakiness of the foundation that we were taking for granted. We realize perhaps that we need to go back to basics and to reorient to what's truly important. So it's humbling. But even the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, before he attained complete liberation, even he needed a wake-up call. So I think many of you are familiar with the story of his life and the legend that when he was living in a palace, he went out of the palace, he snuck out and encountered an aged person, a sick person and a corpse. And this was very confronting to him existentially because he realized that he was of the same nature. He also was subject to aging, illness, death. And then the fourth encounter he had was with a contemplative, a spiritual person. And this spiritual seeker offered him, inspired him to go on the quest that ultimately led to his complete liberation, his complete freedom. So in Buddhist legend, these four characters, the sick person, the aged person, the corpse, and the spiritual seeker are known as the heavenly messengers because they shook the Buddha to be out of his complacency. They woke him up, they pushed him out of his comfort zone and inspired him to develop a more meaningful orientation to life. One that ultimately led not only to his own freedom, but offered that same possibility to any of us, any of us here who are interested in following his path. So we can use whatever challenges we're going through as an impetus to investigate, to explore our lives more deeply and to strengthen what's of true value. And in my own personal experience over the last few months, probably like many of you, when the pandemic first hit, I felt a sense of shock. And there were waves of groundlessness and confusion, anxiety, disorientation, and so on. And at the same time, there was a sort of a quickening, a kind of enlivening feeling, because I realized this is why we practice. This is why we try to do our regular meditation, why we go on retreats, why we study the Dharma, why we look at the Buddha's teachings, so that when challenges such as this one show up, we have more capacity to navigate them with some degree of ease. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but we do have this whole array of teachings that we can turn to or return to that help us deal with the shock and find our way back to balance more quickly. And this is another definition of the resilience that I'm um, theming tonight's talk around. So again, as I've been returning to some of these core teachings, I found that practicing with the four Brahma-Vihara practices has been more essential than ever. And so it's this framework of kindness or metta, compassion 
or karuna, appreciative joy or mudita, and equanimity or upeka that I'm going to be talking about tonight and in the following session in a few weeks. So I think pretty much all of you have at least heard of these qualities, maybe done some practice with them. Has anybody never heard of them until tonight? No? Okay, so that's great. So together, these four qualities really act to condition the heart-mind so that it becomes supple, flexible, resilient. And sometimes I think of it like, just like conditioner for one's hair. It untangles the tangles, smooths out the knots, and softens and strengthens us so that we're supple and uh, pliant. And this term Brahma-Vihara in a way points to this, the, both the experience and the practice because the term is sometimes translated as divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms, sometimes boundless states. And to my ears, at least all of those translations sound a little bit awkward. So I tend to leave it untranslated and just stick with Brahma-Viharas. But I wanted to translate that term because the term, the Brahma part, is um, a reference to a kind of god that was worshipped in India at the time of the Buddha. We don't really have an equivalent for that in our own culture. So it's generally translated as heavenly or sublime. But the Vihara piece, as some of you know, means dwelling place or home or abode. And for me, that's significant. It's the sense of dwelling, of abiding in that I'd like to highlight. Because in the Buddha's understanding, these dwelling places are our true home. When the heart mind is not visited, by these visiting afflictive states, painful emotions, stress, distress, and difficulty. The Brahma-Viharas is where we naturally abide or dwell. And just like with a, a home in the conventional sense, when we're dwelling in the home of the Brahma-Viharas, there's that feeling of ease, of relaxation, of comfort, and a sense of that's where we can be who we truly are. So the second aspect of these qualities that I'd like to highlight is a quality of boundlessness. Sometimes these qualities are referred to as the four immeasurables because they can be developed so completely that they become limitless, boundless, completely unconditional offered, shared equally with all beings in all states, everywhere. Now, that's a pretty high bar. So just before it might start to reinforce any feelings of inadequacy, it's important to remember that these are practices, they're trainings, and they're things that get gradually developed through regularly practicing them, training with them, cultivating them. And I wanted to just touch into 
what each of the four are because at least in my experience having sat in and done many retreats in many different retreat centers often when the brahma viharas are talked about most of the time metta the first one is the one that's given the most kind of airplay and the other three are mentioned in passing but they often not given nearly as much time and that's unfortunate because in my own experience and also working with many students when all four of them are equally well developed that's when we get the most resilience the most strength the most pliancy of heart mind so sometimes i think of them as being like the four strands of a four ply piece of rope just as having four strands to a rope gives it incredible strength much more strength than a single strand rope so together these four really reinforce and strengthen each other the other downside of focusing too much on metta is that sometimes it gives the impression that metta is supposed to be our default response to every life situation and this is not always true or appropriate. In fact, sometimes metta is not the most appropriate response. And one of the other Brahma Viharas, compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity might be what's more needed. So I'll be saying more about those in the second part of this series. So for now, I just want to say that these four Brahma Viharas really support our insight practice because when, when we use the Brahma Viharas actively, they create that level of resilience and we're less prone to attack by the afflictive states such as anger and fear and boredom, jealousy, loneliness, despair and so on. So I sometimes think of the Brahma Viharas as being like vitamin C for our emotional immune system. They provide that um, base level of non-reactivity to affliction. So I'm guessing most of you have had this experience. If you're in what we might call a good mood, little things that otherwise might have been irritating or depressing just seem to bounce off us. And if we look more closely at what we're calling a good mood, we'll probably see that one or more of the Brahma Viharas is present, some sense of kindness or equanimity and so on. So when, when we're in the presence of the Brahma Viharas, things can't, those afflictive states can't get their hooks into us. I'm guessing you've also had the opposite experience that when we're in a bad mood, all those little niggly things get amplified and we tend to more easily get caught up in painful emotions they do get their hooks into us and all the rest of the afflictive states tend to come along for the party so building a regular giving ourselves a regular dose of brahma viharas helps prevent attacks on our immune system but the Brahma Viharas also act as antidotes for when we have been assailed by something painful. So for example, metta or good will, as the name suggests, is the antidote to ill will. So we find ourselves seething in aversion, we can try to 
re-channel or diminish that energy by offering some, ourselves some metta. Compassion is the antidote to suffering, to pain of all kinds, the capacity to meet our emotional or physical pain with care rather than resistance or denial or judgment. Then appreciative joy is the antidote to all forms of envy or jealousy. And equanimity is the antidote to every other kind of reactivity that brings us back into balance, steadiness and stability. So we can think of these four Brahma-Viharas as being like different flavors of love. And all of them work together to support balance of heart and mind to support resilience. Some of you have heard me talk about the way these four work together as being like arranged around the points of a four-pointed diamond. So if you think of a diamond shape, if you can see that at the bottom point of the diamond is metta, this basic quality of goodwill, friendliness, kindness. And it's said that when metta turns towards what's painful or difficult, it flowers as compassion. So compassion is on one of the side points of the diamond. On the other side of the scale, when metta goodwill turns towards what's going well, it flowers as appreciative joy or mudita. So on the two side points of the diamond, we have compassion and appreciative joy balancing each other out. And then when compassion and appreciative joy come together and we have the capacity to open equally to the full spectrum of joys and sorrows, we get equanimity, which is at the pinnacle of the diamond. So that might give you just a sense of how to work with these different practices to balance them out. So for example, if we're finding that our metta is feeling a little bit superficial or not particularly engaged, we might consciously orient to compassion, tune into suffering, and that can help bring the practice alive and sometimes give it a little more depth. On the other hand, if we've been doing a lot of compassion practice, sometimes it can start to slide into a sense of overwhelm or despair. And so then we might need to consciously orient to what's going well and orient more to mudita, to appreciative joy. And if at any point we're feeling out of balance or overwhelmed, then equanimity is always a useful strategy because equanimity helps us to stay steady with both the ups and the downs to make space around any reactivity that might be building up. So again, I'll say more about this next week. Tonight, I would like to focus a little bit more on metta. And just to say that the way it's often taught, again, in my own experience, can be off-putting for some people. So again, I just like to do a little check. How many of you have found meta practice difficult in any way, at any point? Anybody? Yeah, two or three, a handful of people. 
And at least for myself, the, that traditional way of teaching it, of just sitting and reciting silent phrases, may you be safe, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be at ease. Well, first of all, doesn't always feel authentic. Not too many people can just drop into that kind of kindness. And the words can quickly become dry and mechanical or keep us more in our heads. And often we get caught up in trying to manufacture some kind of emotional response that doesn't feel natural or genuine. And then when that doesn't work, we very easily fall into afflictive emotions such as self-judgment, irritation, frustration, and ill will, the very opposite of the state that we're, in quotes, supposed to be cultivating. So this has been true in my own experience at times, and I talk to a lot of students who have similar um, challenges, and often either we decide that meta just doesn't work, or there's something wrong with us and we can't do it. So this evening I wanted to offer a slightly different approach to meta practice, but one that hopefully will also make it more integrated into daily life. Because really that's the point. All of those lovely words and phrases and feelings that we might cultivate on the cushion, the point of them is to have them become more available when we're standing in the supermarket or driving in traffic or just going about our daily lives. So there was a turning point for me when I understood that none of these Brahma-Vihara practices are about trying to conjure up some kind of state. They're more about attuning to what's already there, even if that's very distant and faint. So remembering how I said earlier that the Brahma-Viharas are our natural home when the heart-mind is free of afflictive states. If we understand that, then metta practice becomes more about releasing what gets in the way of that expression of kindness. And one way in to do that is to start to tune our sensors in a way even in daily life, to notice the myriad acts of kindness that are happening all the time all around us and that often are just unnoticed. This is partly because of the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, which tends to focus more on the challenges, the problems, the difficulties of life than on what's going well or what's benevolent. But one of the unexpected benefits of the pandemic situation is there's been an outpouring of kindness from people. And even the media has been forced to report it. You know, people really coming together and wanting to volunteer for their families, their friends, their neighbors, helping out in the community, taking care of elders, supporting homeless people. There's just been so many different stories and I'm sure I know many of you have been working in your own communities to do whatever you can wherever you can to help people out and so just really allowing letting in these uh, meta actions so that we're in a way tuning into the field of meta that's already available 
The other piece that's key there is to also open to and acknowledge our own kindness. And for many people, this is particularly challenging because so many of us have that conditioned tendency to unworthiness, to not good enough, to self-doubt, self-criticism. And then society reinforces it with messages of not being proud or not blowing your own trumpet and so on. And so we can shy away from acknowledging times when we are generous or kind or caring. But this is really unfortunate because it disconnects us from things that could be a resource that could strengthen our Brahma Vihara practice. So a few of you have heard me talk about some guidance that the Buddha offered to a layman by the name Mahanama. This is a sutta that I found really interesting because Mahanama was a lay person and he went to the Buddha and said, you know, you give all these teachings for monastics, but please give some teachings that are suitable for a lay person like me, who, quote, lives in a household that is dusty and crowded with children. So very much living an ordinary life. And the Buddha said to Mahanama that he should every day contemplate six things. And if he did this every day, it would deepen his understanding of Dharma, it would strengthen his ability to concentrate and to meditate, and he would make profound progress on the path to freedom. So what are the six things? Some of them are fairly traditional. So to contemplate the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dharma, the good qualities of the Sangha, and the last one to um, contemplate the good qualities of the Devas or angels. The two that I really caught my attention were that he said to Mahanama, every day contemplate your own generosity and contemplate your own good qualities. And when I read this, I was slightly appalled at the idea of every day contemplating your own good qualities. But the more we do it, the less personally we take them. And it actually becomes very free. We can start to acknowledge them without identifying with them. And then they really do become a resource that strengthens our path. So in that same spirit, I just invite you to tune into times when you are able to be kind. Any time that you offer or receive kindness, so that when you sit down to meditate, you've already in a way cultivated a field of metta and it makes it much easier to start to engage with that energy. Not only engage with it, imaginatively or intellectually, but to begin to embody it. So earlier I said the use of phrases can keep us caught a little bit more in the cognitive mind. Again, for me, a turning point was learning to recognize how meta actually feels as an embodied energy, as a sort of a resonant frequency, because this can act as a positive feedback loop. When we are able to open to the energy of kindness, most people experience it as subtly pleasant. 
And that pleasantness supports the concentration and the stilling of the mind that the Buddha referred to when he gave the teaching to Mahanama. And when the mind is still and calm and clear, this leads to deepening insight, which makes it easier to let go of more subtle afflictive states and start to develop the deep calm and ease and peace that are the goal of all of the Buddha's teachings. But don't take my word for it. So even right now, I'm going to invite you just to think of a time recently when either you were kind to someone else or someone was kind to you. So I'll just give you a couple of minutes in silence to bring to mind that experience. Just a time when there was a simple, small exchange of kindness, either offered or received. As you remember that experience, see if you can recreate it as vividly as you can in your imagination. Take a moment to notice any effect it might have on the body. Perhaps there's a slight trace of a smile or a feeling of softening around the eyes. Maybe the shoulders relax just a little. Perhaps the breath feels a little deeper and fuller. The belly softens and relaxes. For some people, there might be a feeling of warmth in the heart, the chest, or an overall feeling of lightness and warmth. And then as you connect with that embodied energy of kindness, it might even begin to expand and to strengthen. And pervade your whole body. The whole body becomes imbued with this meta energy. And then this energy of warmth and kindness might begin to very naturally expand. be offered and received by any other beings that you care about. You 
you might bring to mind some beings who you'd like to share this energy of warmth and kindness with. Inviting them into your meta field. and sensing how they too receive this warmth and kindness and they too begin to soften and relax. And then they look back at you with those same kind eyes of metta, offering you warmth, kindness, and care. So we're sitting together now in this reciprocal flow of kindness and warmth being offered, being received. And expanding now to include all the people here on the call with you today. All of us with some intention to develop more kindness, more care, more warmth. May we use the challenges of these times to help strengthen our natural capacity for kindness, care, metta. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.